I want to read two passages of Scripture. The first, very, very brief, Philippians chapter 3, verses 6, and then drop down to verse 14. The first says, persecuting the church. And then we read further down where Paul says, forgetting what lies behind. Persecuting the church, forgetting what lies behind. And then from the book of Revelation, chapter 12. This is where John on the Isle of Patmos saw a war in heaven. And here is what happened. He said, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come down. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Well, may God be pleased to bless the reading and the preaching of this, his most holy and infallible word. Brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray now for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus by your Spirit to rest upon every mind in this place in order that their perception of what I say will be heard as you intend. Cleanse my tongue, that I will be your transparent instrument to say everything that needs to be said, nothing that doesn't need to be said. I pray that this will be a life-changing word, a word that brings great honor and glory to your name. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. It's wonderful to be back. Thank you, Mike, for that great introduction. Um, I'll try not to let it go to my head. Uh, He had written down what to say that I'm the greatest theologian since the Apostle Paul (laughs) and the most humble man since Moses. But he didn't have the courage. (laughs) I love coming here. I'll I'll come clean. There are two invitations a year I get that I cherish, and I, I accept them humbly. One is going to the, the Cove in Asheville Church. It's Billy Graham Training Center. I've been there 13 times. The other's coming to the Church of the Apostles. I think I've been here just about that number of times. I'm so honored. I'm honored to know Michael. There's nobody in the world like him. And just to be his friend is a privilege. And it's so good to be back. My cousin, Dr. R.V. Reese, drove up uh, from Fitzgerald to, to hear me today. 
My wife Louise, who was here last week, is home with an acute sciatical pain. I mean, she can, it's terrible. She's under doctor's care. Her grandson Toby is looking after her. Uh, T.R. is with me with the books. The difference between the cove and here, <laughs> this is true. At the cove, you pay the regular price for my books. Here, we practically give them away. And that's, it's no joke, $10. I mean, here, I, what I'm preaching on today uh, should cost you 15 Some are 16 We We, we just want to get rid of them, and I'll sign them and devalue them if that helps. Uh, last week, I told you I felt compelled to preach a sermon that some of you have heard before. I'm always self-conscious when I have to do that, but I had to. Well, again, what I have to say today is a sequel to what I preached last week. They go together. Many of you were not here. Those who were, maybe you need it again. It's a message that God has given me to help people who say, I know God forgives me, but I cannot forgive myself. It's a common problem. There's not a pastor under the sun who has not heard his parishioners say, I know God forgives me, but I cannot forgive myself. I had the same problem for a long time. And the time came I had to face. Do I believe what I preach or not? And uh, it's a long story. I will just get right to the heart of it. I was at Westminster Chapel for 25 years. At the end of 25 years, I was invited by Billy Graham to do a video. And they asked me questions such as, what's it like for an American being pastor of a church in London? How do you prepare your sermons? What is your doctrine of the Holy Spirit? And then they said, well, that's uh, 59 minutes. We've got one minute to go. Uh, tell us about your role as a father. I said, stop. Stop. Don't film. On this... I have been a failure. For 25 years, I put sermon preparation first, thinking I was putting God first. I put the church first, thinking I was putting God first. I now believe that had I put my family first, I would have preached just as well, maybe better. But I can't get those years back, so ask me something else. Well, they filmed that. <laughs> that is the only part they used. <laughs> they said it would encourage pastors. You have no idea the guilt, the shame that I've experienced over what I've just described to you. But guess what? I did what I... It, if I were to say this, I found forgiving myself harder to do than forgiving my worst enemy. I felt it's not fair. I've been such a lousy father. And how dare I, just in one stroke, 
forgive myself. It was embarrassing. It's, I, I don't deserve this. But you know what? I did it. I did it. And I have never been the same again. If, it, if I had time, I could say a lot more. And I have a feeling there's somebody here who needs this as much as I needed to preach it to myself. And I'm going to tell you how I did it. And for anybody here who needs to do it. Now, as I say in my book, How to Forgive Ourselves Totally. Your problem may be altogether different from mine. For example, there may be someone here. You gave up too soon, and you always wanted what might have been. And you can't forgive yourself for the lost years. You let people down. You fell into sexual sin. You had an abortion. Unfaithfulness in marriage. Being sentenced to prison for a crime. Abusing your children. Lying to your best friend. Ruining another person's career. You injured your health through carelessness. Wasted years with the wrong company. You gave wrong advice and hurt another person's future. Living with the wrong choice in life. Waiting too long to get right with God. I could go on and on. Let me define what I mean by forgiving yourself. It's letting yourself off the hook. In the same way that God lets us off the hook when we ask for forgiveness of all our sins. Now, some years ago, I was gripped by the fact that the Apostle Paul, in his autobiographical section in early Philippians 3, just mentions one thing, persecuting the church. And three sentences later... He says, forgetting what's behind. Wait a minute. Paul, hold it. You just said persecuting the church. Do you not know what that meant? You were out getting people to blaspheme. You were trying to kill people. Some think he did kill people. He says, yes, I persecuted the church. And three sentences later, forgetting what's behind. Wait, how can you do that? Don't you need to say something about how sorry you are, how ashamed you are? How can you just go right to forgetting what is behind? There's a reason he could do it. And that is he believed what he preached. Now, I don't know how long it took Paul to do that. It took me a long time. But I will be as candid as I know how. It was the best thing I could have done. It was so hard to do. But once I did it, I wasn't prepared for the liberty that came. Now, I have preached this all over the world. I remember three years ago, one particular incident. I preached this in, um, I think, Johannesburg. A lady came up to me, and she 
took my hand and just wouldn't let go. And she said, finally, you've no idea what you've done for me tonight. And I could see that she got it. There may be someone here. You need this word. Now, the first thing I ask is, why should you do it? Well, I'll give you a few reasons, and I'm rushing through a lot. I'm conscious of time, and I know they would say, go on over, it doesn't matter. But I would, let me just say this. Why you should do it. Reason number one is what God wants you to do. Now, that for me was the stumbling block. It seemed too good to be true. Too good to be true that God wants me to do it. You know, sometimes we have the idea that God says, Well, now, wait a minute. I will forgive you, but need to know um, how you're going to turn out. I can't just do it like that. I've got to put you on trial or You've got to come up to a certain stage, and then I'll forgive you. You see, that's the way the natural mind works. And I'm ashamed to tell you that I was a bit like that. Here, I, I can easily preach you need to forgive yourself to others, or totally forgive, because the blood of Jesus Christ washes away all sin. That should do it. But then in my own case, I thought, well, I felt so embarrassed, because those years of letting my family down by putting everything else first. And those 25 years at Westminster Chapel, I can hardly remember the children. It was always trying to preach a better sermon and all that stuff. And I felt awful. But when I saw it, this is what God wants me to do. It's honoring Him. Not only that, it's honoring the blood that Jesus shed on the cross and I was backed into a corner. And I thought, this is what God really does want. When I saw that I did it, and oh, I couldn't believe how good I would feel. Kind of embarrassing, almost a shame, but I feel so good. This is how Paul could say, per persecuting the church and forget what's behind. He had done it. And somebody here needs to do it. There's another reason you should do it. Because the devil doesn't want you to do it. A good way to know the will of God. Figure out what you think the devil would want you to do and do the opposite. You'll get it right. Another reason. It will give you inner peace and freedom from bondage. The degree to which you forgive yourself will, will direct you and relate directly to your own usefulness. Another reason, it will help you love people more. Another reason, it will help people to like you more. You say, oh, I don't care what people think. You lie. You do care. You want to be the kind of person when you walk in the room, they all go, oh, look who's here. You don't want to be like that. And you see, when you forgive yourself, you love people, they're going to like you. It will help you to, to fulfill all of God's purpose for you. Another reason, your physical health could be at stake. I preached a sermon on forgiveness uh, another place in the world. I don't remember because two years later when I went, they, 
lady came up to me. She said, when you were here before and you preached your sermon on forgiveness, in the middle of the sermon, I was healed. Healed. I said, what happened? She said, as you ticked off the different things, I said, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. And I said, I was healed at the end. I wonder how many times that's happened. I know that I preached this in North London, Church of England, in North London, about five years ago. And a lady who was deaf set her ears open, didn't need to sign her anymore. This will help you in your emotional and mental health. Because it's not healthy when you hate yourself. A lot of people have the idea that it's spiritual to say, I don't like myself. Oh, no, it's selfishness that you say that. And finally, your spiritual health is at stake. This is so important. I could probably preach it all over the world every week. Now, there's another aspect of what I would say, and I honestly am not trying to get you to buy the book. Sell them at cost anyway. But I will say this. a, A section of the book, a lot of people have found very helpful which I, it would take 10 or 15 minutes to unravel it. And that is the difference between false guilt and true guilt. Pseudo-guilt. The word pseudo comes from a Greek word that means lie. And there are times when people think it's real guilt and it's false guilt. And uh, uh, I, I just need to say this. Pseudo-guilt is the hardest to deal with. You see, pseudo-guilt is not sin. And yet, if you persist in it, then it becomes a sin. Uh, Pseudo-guilt. You worry about what people think, and you feel guilty. A person comes up to you and says, you went right by me, and you didn't speak to me. And you think, oh, I'm so sorry, and you worry all day long. What would that person think? That's pseudo-guilt. I could go on and on. A friend of mine gave me a boat when we moved in the Keys, and I didn't use it very much. And I thought, I've got to be out in that boat. He spent all that money. Pseudo guilt. And the devil will use that just to bring you down. The irony is, pseudo guilt's the hardest to deal with. But once you know it's real guilt, when you're culpable before God, That's the easiest to deal with. You know why? God doesn't make you jump through hoops before he says, okay, now I'll forgive you and you can forgive yourself. No. The blood of Jesus so satisfies the justice and wrath of God that if you saw that, you see how stupid we are to let things bother us. He's satisfied. Why punish yourself? I'll tell you why we do it. First of all, it's self-righteousness. Oh, how subtle self-righteousness is. And we, we think somehow we're honoring God. When we, oh, I can't forgive myself for that. He wants me to deal. Listen, pseudo-guilt. Hard to deal with because the devil will use it. But once you see that it's real guilt... And you're culpable. It's easy to deal with because God just says, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins 
and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And here I am, and and some people call me a theologian. I feel like a phony. It took all those years. And one day it hit me. God wants me to forgive myself. I did it. it. It's been wonderful. It's been wonderful. Now someone will ask, you should ask, my failure to be a good parent. Pseudo guilt or real guilt? And the answer is, it was real guilt. I did let my kids down. I've confessed it to God. I've confessed it to them. And I've forgiven them. And you just need to remember, too, that the devil is the accuser. This is what I read from the book of Revelation. The accuser of the brothers has been cast down. And his job description is to accuse you. Now, the devil has a perfect memory of every bad thing you've ever done. He will remind you of bad things that you forgot about. And he loves to do it about two o'clock in the morning. And you can't go back to sleep. That's the devil. He's the accuser. That's his job description. That's what he does. And he's looking day and night for an entry point to get in, to bring you right down. And you know, we've all got skeletons in the cupboard. And if you don't confess to God and mean it, the devil will get in. And he will remind you of your past. Oh, by the way, the next time the devil reminds you of your past, remind him of his future. He knows he has a short time. He knows he's going to end up in eternal hell. And he wants to bring everybody with him he can. Don't give the devil pleasure by focusing on your past and saying, I can't forgive myself. It's a matter of honoring the blood of Jesus. Some of you know this. I was brought up in the church of the Nazarene. My father named me after his favorite preacher, who was Dr. R.T. Williams. That's why I go by R.T. My name is Robert Tillman, but my dad called me R.T. from one hour old. That's all I've known all my life, (laughs) except when we went to Oxford. My supervisor at Oxford, he says, may I call you Robert? I said, no. (laughs) He said, we don't like initials over here. Well, I went along with it, but three years he called me Robert. Never got used to it. Don't you try it. It's RT. (laughs) Thing is, Dr. R.T. Williams used to ordain people to the ministry, and he'd give them this, this advice. Honor the blood and honor the Holy Ghost. Those were his words. Honor the blood, that means what Jesus did for you on the cross. And that's what we're doing. That's what we're doing when we forgive ourselves. It's not because we deserve it. Oh, no. But because of the blood is shed. 
And what he meant by honor the Holy Ghost, and that's to be open to the Holy Spirit. But there's one last thing I want to say. And one of the best ways to forgive yourself, if all else fails, is to remember the family secret. Do you know what is the family secret? It's Romans 8.28. The verse I think about probably every day. Paul says, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. I love it. He says, we know. It's the family. We know. If you're outside the family, it doesn't apply to you. This is for those in the family. Those outside the family don't get it. They can't figure out how everything that is in your past works together for good. Well, Paul says, you may not know, but we do. We know. Well, how do we know? Well, for one thing, we found it out. You've learned it by experience. When he uses the word know, we know it's the Greek word oidomen. Now, there are two Greek words. There's others, but mainly two Greek words that translate to know. There's the Greek word gnosko that often refers to revealed knowledge. And there's oida, that means knowledge of a well-known fact. Facts that nobody would dispute. Atlanta is the capital of Georgia. Nashville, the, where we live, capital of Tennessee. The distance from Oxford to London, 60 miles. These are facts. Well, that's the word he uses. We know. It's a fact. We found it out. There's not a Christian here, but what you can look back. And those things that haunted you, give it time. They work together for good. Why does he say work together for good? That's because what happened wasn't good. <laughs> if it had been good, it doesn't need to work together for good. But because it wasn't good. Failure. Letting people down. That was not good. But here's the family secret. Because God loves you so much, and you are a part of the family, when it comes to the past, God says, no trespassing allowed. Don't look back. That's why Paul could say, forgetting what is behind don't look back. We found out. Give it a little time. All things work together for good. Last week I told you about my darkest hour when I had to forgive them. It was the hardest thing I ever had to do up until then. After that, forgiving myself. But I can tell you something. That moment that I referred to last week when I had to forgive people, I wouldn't have known then that one day I would not only thank God for that, I would say it's the best thing that ever happened to me. And this is the thing God does. 
He causes those things, those skeletons in your closet, those things you're ashamed of. Give it time. We'll work together for good. Now, caution. Listen carefully. The fact that it works together for good doesn't mean that what you did was right at the time. Don't justify it. Husband will say to the wife, see there, it worked out, shows I was right. No, it doesn't. God caused it to be right. So the fact that something works together for good doesn't mean that what you did was right. No. I was not right to neglect my children. But it worked together for good. The book of Joel says God will restore the years which the locusts have eaten. Go out to the book table. Who's traveling the world with me? I mean, we're closer than ever. My son. See, God does that. He will do it for you. One of the worst sins of the Old Testament. I think we'd all agree. If you had to look for the worst situation in the Old Testament, most embarrassing, horrible, heinous moment, King David, at the height of his life, at the height of his life, I mean, he was on top of the world. He was on top, and he had done everything God wanted him to do. And then one afternoon, he got up from a nap, looked across, and there was a beautiful woman washing herself. I've often wondered, why does the Bible bother to say she was beautiful? Is it supposed to make us sympathetic with David? <laughs> it says that she was beautiful. Whatever. He thought, who is that? He called an aide. Who's that woman? We'll find out. Comes back. Bad news, sir. She's married. Her husband is Uriah, one of your best soldiers. Instead of David saying, oh, thank you for telling me, forget it. His mind worked differently. Uriah, that means he's at battle. He's in the war. Her husband's not at home. He sends for her. He lay with her. A few weeks later, he says, we've got a problem. I'm pregnant. To make a long story short, he has Uriah killed there's nothing worse than that in the whole of the Old Testament. When's the last time you read the first chapter of Matthew? It's the most boring chapter in the Bible. We don't give Matthew to a new Christian. We give him Mark or Luke or John. Because if you give a new Christian... Matthew, and he starts reading. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez. And he says, what on earth am I reading? But just keep reading then. It says, Jesse, the father of David, the king. David was the father of Solomon, the wife of Uriah. Even mentions Uriah. What does this tell you? That the bloodline of Messiah. David had several wives. 
God says, let it go through Bathsheba. Surely not. Yes, says God. And if you didn't know the past, and you read that Solomon was Bathsheba's son, you would have thought that's the way it was supposed to be. In other words, there's no reference to David's sin. It just shows how in the bloodline of Messiah, God made everything work together for good. You wouldn't have known the history. That's the kind of God we serve. And he knows all that's in your past. But he's saying to you, this is why my son died on the cross. Look at the blood. Forgive yourself. In the name of the blood of Jesus, forgive yourself and don't look back. And don't give the devil pleasure by dwelling on the past. Do what God wants you to do. And there is a new life awaiting you. Honor the blood because this honors him. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for the family secret. Thank you that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Apply this word. Give grace for everyone here never to look back. In Jesus' name, amen.